What's up, world? It is Thursday noon. You are listening to WHPK 88.5, so that means you are rocking with Air Go Radio. This is Daniel. And I'm Damon. And if you don't know, what we do here is we showcase strong young voices from Chicago and beyond. Each week, we have a live, long-form conversation with an artist, writer, organizer, poet, musician, uh, creator who's, cool who's reshaping the culture of this city. We have a very, very, very special guest that we're, we've both been grinning all morning. I'm too and it's real quick, shout out to Via Rosa. We uh, hosted the fundraiser to, to help save her building. Um, we had a great night at Emporium. You can still support that at GoFundMe backslash Savia's home. Yeah, we made about $2,000 of the $7,000 goal, and I know she has a bunch of uh, other funds that have been raised for her. So it's looking good, but we're not there yet. So support her. Uh, we, we got our auction game on. It got yeah. a little crazy. Yeah, we were killing it. Also, we're going to let y'all know a little bit more about this next week, but Breathing Room, Let Us Breathe's regular uh, movement building, community space, headquartered in North Lawndale will be happening President's Day, February 15th. Keep your eyes open, ears peeled. And one last plug. Uh, I'm not going to be able to make it, but this coming Tuesday, Ryan Coogler, who did uh, Fruitvale Station and Creed and is doing a new uh, Black Panther superhero movie, is doing a talk here at the University of Chicago. Yeah. It's free. I wish I could be here. I'll be out of town, but definitely find out the info for that. Uh, he's, it's like the Kent lecture, some big prestigious thing uh, that he got. So definitely come through. And he's just, he's a strong young voice, you you're, know? You're so in the know. <laughs> all right, all right. We got to keep it moving because I'm like super, super excited. Here we have, I don't even know how to introduce you. So, I know you don't like your praise, but we have you trapped in a room for an hour. <laughs> so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to just take it. All this right. This is a nightmare already. Here we have the amazing, powerful Miss Miriam Cobb. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Woo! Thank yeah. you for having me very much. I'm, I'm so excited. So for those who've been listening to the show regularly, whether on 88.5 WHBK or shout out to all the podcast SoundCloud listeners, um, we've had a lot of organizers on the show. Or if you're just paying attention to the world, especially Chicago, um, there's a really robust movement happening around social justice and the issues affecting our bodies in this world. Um, and I think a lot of the school of thought that the people that I work with um, is directly delineated from your work and your teachings, Miss Miriam Kaba. So I'm excited because you're kind of like the patron saint that we like honor, even when you're not around. Um, and your name like carries weight. So I'm so, so excited to be here and be able to like learn from you. Well, yeah, I'm excited to be here. I um, was mentioning before that this is my favorite new podcast. Hey, yes. we do <laughs> really excited to be here. I can't even believe it. Yeah, I mean, all the other all the other things that we'll get to aside, you. This is a rare opportunity to interview arguably our most vocal supporter awesome. on Twitter. Awesome. So That's shout right. out to you for that, <laughs> yes. among all of the million other things. <laughs> but the other piece of the show that you serve is you probably come up the most of anyone else that we've like in our conversations your name always comes up in the way that Damon was describing uh as a kind of pillar and mentor at this moment in the city how do you think about that mentorship like how yeah how does that shape your interactions with the world um well I think that I should say I don't see myself in those terms mm -hmm. I think I see myself more as somebody who um I'm an organizer, I'm an educator, and as a result of that, I get to interact with amazing people, and many of those people are young people. So it just so happens that because I walk alongside, um, maybe people are able to learn something from the actions that I take more than kind of the... Um, the stories that I tell or the lessons that I would impart in a kind of very specific, deliberate way. Um, so I see myself more as a co-struggler mm. to the mm. young people that I get to work alongside. So, yeah, that's how I would put it. That's beautiful. So there are two things that come to my mind when I think of Mary Akava. First thing would be prison abolition. Uh, and we're going to get to that and like the whole backstory in a second. But the other thing that's like really cool to me is like the mysterious kind of the <laughs> mystique that you have. And I think a lot of it comes from the um, the request that you don't be photographed in public. And so I've always been really, really curious as to what 
like inspired that or stemmed from that? Is it just the feds and just like protecting yourself or is it something deeper or something like more superficial to that? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Nobody's ever asked me why I don't take any photos. Really? Um, nobody has. <laughs> yes. And I've been interviewed wow. a lot. So yeah, again. Ergo exclusive. Right Ergo exclusive. Again. <laughs> we actually, we don't even need the answer. We'll you just know? take the props <laughs> to the question. Um, yeah, I, I don't do photos for a lot of reasons. The main one is that um, organizing, especially if you're an organizer, it's not about you. Mm -hmm. You're not the person who people necessarily should be focused on. I've always preferred to do my work behind the scenes. Um, it's by necessity that I've become more public over the years um, in order to basically push the ideas and the agenda and the, the demands that I care about. But I think that you should mostly do your work out of public view um, if you're an organizer. And so that is kind of where it started. Um, I also never really liked photos, even mm -hmm. as a young person. Mm -hmm. I took them, but I didn't feel comfortable and it turns out that my years and years ago, my grandmother told me a story about my grandfather on my father's side who um, hated photos mm. and never wanted to take them. There's one photograph of him mm. that we have still to this day. And that one photograph is, is of him coming back from Mecca oh, after wow. he came back from the pilgrimage. And he always said to people he didn't want to be on camera. He didn't want to be on camera. When he died... Um, he was very well known in his community, very well respected man. And so hundreds and thousands of people showed up for his funeral and people took photos of him. Um, and the way that Muslim kind of funerals go is that you're wrapped you're not put in a in a casket. You don't. You're not buried in a casket. You're wrapped in cloth, usually white cloth, and you're put into the ground. Mm -hmm. So people took photos um, at the funeral, even though people had expressly said, "Don't take any photos." He hated mm -hmm. being in on camera, and none of the photos came out. Wow. <laughs> none of them. <laughs> People tried to like when they tried to print them, they came out like either blank, like sun, <laughs> right? That's the strength of how much he did not want to be in photos, right? So I like to think that maybe that is the spirit that infused me is yeah. that my, my grandfather's it's either spirit. beyond death or bad photography <laughs> or, or a combination of both. <laughs> so, that's so, right. so I want to touch at something that, that you spoke about that's like something that I'm dealing with. Yeah. Um, the tension between like organizing now that I like consider myself a full-fledged organizer um, and, and the idea of public or being public. Um, and so like my entry, like my life was pretty public, like as I was growing up and I know that there are a lot of people who uh, for better or worse use the attention that can be garnered from being public in order to like thrust the work. But also on a day to day, I'm becoming more and more critical uh, of even my own position mm -hmm. and the attention that I get. So mm -hmm. can, can you speak, especially in this like social media age of organizing, I'm sure this has to be really interesting from your perspective, mm -hmm. the last just three years alone of how consciousness is changing, how communication is changing um, and how like almost your amount of Twitter followers can affect how many people you bring to a march mm -hmm. type type of idea how, how do you see that tension from someone who has had such experience from it and as someone who does not want to be public yeah i think that um i think that a lot of this has to do with people's personalities and also what you do with the attention that you get mm. it matters more um you know how you a lot of organizing is about meetings <laughs> yes. Right. Oh There's God. actually a book that's like, you know, freedom is an endless meeting, you know, and that's really, really true that, that there's, is, you know, oh my God, that a, is so true. a lot of organizing happens and face to face behind the scenes, not sexy, you know, day to day grunt work that almost nobody ever gets to see. The image that's projected of people who are organizers is separate from the organizing, mm. in my opinion, mm -hmm. right? That image is of an activist or of a spokesperson or of a representative of right. some sort. Or and, an advocate. Or an advocate or, you know, that's something very different, that, that public. So I think as long as you keep those things separate in your own mind, the difference between the organizing work you're doing 
every day and the spokesperson advocate mm. role that you take on in public. And as long as you keep your own ego in check as you're kind of, mm. you know, moving through that, yeah. then I don't see any sort of conflicts or problems with that. Yeah, I mean, that ego question is the big I mean, and it's easy to say, like, or I don't know if it's easy to say. What strikes me off of what you just said is that ability to pull the ego out of it and I think some of that comes from maturity and I think some of it comes from like folks learning their role and what they actually do best um for you how did you start thinking about like and maybe it was more natural for you but pulling the ego out of it and saying okay what is what what is the piece of this that's actually about the work I don't I think I'm very lucky my um concepts have always been collectivist Mm -hmm. I grew up in a collectivist family. Okay. Um, I come from a collectivist background. Can you define that real quick? Meaning that um, I grew up as the daughter of returned migrants. My parents um, immigrated to the United States, and then when my father retired, they moved back. So that's return migrancy. I come, my father is from Guinea in West Africa. My mm. mother's from Senegal. There is no individual... <laughs> Right? Within mm. those cultures. Okay. You belong to a family. When people meet you, they don't say, hi, Damon, how are you? They're like, whose son are you? Wow. Okay. Whose daughter are you? Whose grandfather are you? You know, whose mm. grandchild are you? Whose uncle, you know, who's like your aunt? Whose niece are you? Who's, you know? So people really just automatically put you within that kind of collectivist framework, right? Mm. That you are belong to something. You're part of a community. You're not just an individual. And when you grow up with that as your cultural kind of script in your background, it's much easier to make the leap between that to doing organizing because you understand that you're part of a collective mm. by nature, right? right? It's not even really a choice. It's not even a choice. Yeah, you're not an individual. You're an individual within a context, a social context within a community, and that matters a great deal. And so I think that for me, it's been natural to see myself within that role. Um, and it's been unnatural, frankly, to see myself separated out as one individual person. Mm. Mm. So a, a little bit earlier, you made an important linguistic distinction that I've been trying to like become more concrete in my understanding of organizing versus activism. Mm-hmm. Can you speak towards that a little bit or where you see the difference? between? Absolutely. The um, when you're an activist, first of all, the importance of the activist idea is that you can do activism alone. It's You can just be in your house <laughs> and you can um, fill out petitions. Mm. You can make calls to your elected officials. You can um, write letters to the editor. Those are all forms of activism. Also, I think the other part that's really important about thinking about yourself as an activist is most activists are part of mobilizations. Like you're, you know, you're a mobilizer of other people, maybe. You're, uh, you know, put out like a statement in a manifesto and you get a whole bunch of people to show up once to a rally. That's a form of activism. When you're an organizer, you have a very distinct set of things you're trying to do. You're trying to build a base of people. Mm -hmm. That's very important. So that means organization is important Mm. to organizers, right? (laughs) That a container within which people can make their demands known and understood, that's really important. So you, you need to build a base if you're an organizer. You need to also understand that you are hopefully bringing up the interests and issues that are most concerning to that base. You're accountable to some people. You have accountability, meaning that you're not just going out there spewing your ideas about how the world should be. You're bringing other people's hopes, desires, dreams with you, Mm. right? So Mm -hmm. that's a huge responsibility. You're not just about yourself. And then that you're taking that base to build power, to move your issues, Mm. to make your demands into wins that make sense for your particular constituents and particular people who are in your base. That is a very different way of moving in the world. And it's not that one is better than the other. I'm not, you don't make judgment calls about it. It's that one is different from the other. Right. <laughs> it's not the same thing, you know? And, and do you see ever the, the like intersection of the two happening within a person effectively? Absolutely, but most organizers that I know do activism okay. too. Right. 
right? Mm. But not all activists do organizing. Okay. Right. <laughs> do you yeah. see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so that's the difference. Right. That's and the difference. if you do one, know that you're only doing one of them and don't stand for the all the responsibilities of the other one if you're not doing that work. Right. Don't call yourself an organizer when you're an activist. Mm. Right. And that's OK. Like, yeah. I'm not against people who are activists. In fact, <laughs> I think activism is very crucial and helpful in a larger kind of movement for social justice and change. But I think those things are distinct from each other. And it's not about me being parochial or what. It's just true. Yeah. You know, I, mean, yeah. I don't know what else to tell people. Yeah. So we're here on WHBK with. The wonderful Miriam Kaba. Uh, I'm just, I'm really just here learning. Y'all are like listening to me, getting my one on one, getting some game. Uh, but, but let's take a, a, a step back. Unless you, you about to play a track, Kiss? Yeah. No. All right, great. Uh, let's take a step back, and, and I would love to know, like, I, I'm hearing about your family, but where you come from? I know you have roots in New York. Uh, is that where you were, were born? Is... Yes, I was born and raised in New York City, um, and I. Um went to college. I left to go to Montreal. I went to McGill University. Mm. Um, and then I came back What'd to the study? city. I studied sociology. Mm. Uh. I'm a sociologist by training. <laughs> I know. I try not to admit that out loud. Um, I have a social degree myself. <laughs> Do social you? Econ, there yeah. you go. Sociology. <laughs> yeah, that's where that's the at. only time I'm ever going to bring that up in public. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then why, I... What, can you briefly describe why you're hesitant or, or critical yes. of sociology? Well, I'm critical of sociology because sociology is so anti-black you know um there's such a, a kind of a, a erasure of the history of the people who actually made sociology and mm. if you think about it almost no sociology majors read wb du bois he's arguably the father of sociology right. and american sociology yeah. um obviously there's a european branch of sociology um, and we read those folks we read weber and mm. we read marx and we read other right. people that are sociologists and bring a lot to sociology but almost nobody actually reads uh du bois um if you also should i mean jane adams really mm -hmm. uh contributed yeah. to sociology and you almost never read about any of her work That's within really interesting sociology because sociology was how i got my like entry into the language or into even those figures that you're mentioning now so it's interesting that like yeah. on a structural level you're saying that it is inadequate in, in bringing them no up. i think it's very inadequate but i also think um that people don't actually read their work right. they you might they learn their contribution oh, you know okay. what i mean yeah. or they say oh and du bois but like have you read Black Reconstruction? Like, yeah. have you read The Souls of Black Folk? Like, have you actually read and engaged the work? Or of his these evolution, people? right? Like, how right. did he come from the talents and Tiff to being, you know, a, yeah, a full fledged a Pan Africanist right. communist? Yeah. Like, you know, like all this, you don't actually engage their words. And that to me is really detrimental. Um, in academia and fields of study, you have to not just give people my, like a little you know nod to the head yeah. and I'm calling out your name and that's mm. enough. You've you got to engage mark, their yeah. ideas. Yeah. Kind of what we do you now know? to Martin Luther King. Right, <laughs> to King and many others. Uh, people throw Even out Malcolm Ella X. Baker. Yeah. They were, like, but nobody's read actual stuff that they've written. Mm. Their words, like that matters. You don't, not <laughs> yeah. just their biographies matter, right. but the things they produce, the, their, their intellectual thought matters a great deal because then how do you learn about like who they how did they become who they were if you, all you know is the biography written by somebody else and that's why know? on like in theory their names and their stories are elevated is because their ideas were revolutionary and you changing. would think yeah you would think so <laughs> you would think but you ask most people what did they actually say Right. And then and there's you get, a lot of silence. And then you get or quotes out of context. That's exactly. That well, you know, yeah. they've yeah. done that to Audre Lorde to the nth degree, yeah. like you, three words. And that's all we ever know about yeah. her. No, people have like long bodies of intellectual work. Right. And Paul I, I has see books. This, <laughs> well, I see this as black, particularly around black women's um, labor, our intellectual labor mm. that completely gets erased mm. and doesn't labor. get contended with. And that means that the canon then stays in this Eurocentric white kind of Eurocentric way that that never kind of breaks open. Well, it seems like, and we're getting like super academic and we'll go back in a minute, but it seems like that erasure is consistent with the erasure of black labor and black women's labor across the board. It's that's not right. just intellectual, it's the same model. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. That's so we, we, we jumped to the university, but I want to backtrack to New York a little bit just for partially selfish reasons. Ah, here we go. First of all, nice to have another New York transplant on the show. New uh, York City. Woo! Giordano's pizza, <laughs> the Beggar's pizza, the home run in. Uh, we got Harold's on 87th. No, no. <laughs> oh, 
we got Uncle Remus on Rose. I did not bring it up for the pizza conversation, but we can go there off air if we need to. We have to get it out. Before y'all do your thing. All right. But, you know, you were... I don't want to. I don't want to hypothesize the years, but you know, you're in New York, coming up in the, the you know 80s. the big bad New York '80s. That's right. Um, which you know the the myth of it is powerful, and then of course there was also the reality that is before my time. But yeah. um, are there any specific examples of either uh, like systemic injustices you were looking at, mm-hmm. or also like organizing models that you were aware of at a young age that? really stuck with you? That's a really great question. I um, I tell people all the time, I believe very much in the idea that you should, uh, you know, test around your theories and ideas about the world and b- become part of every possible thing that you can, especially when you're young, um, because it's part of learning and growing and mm-hmm. understanding yourself, but also understanding the world. So I, you know, was, uh, I got involved with the Nation of Islam at a very young age. I, you know, uh, was part of the Black United Front. Um, I did a whole bunch of work around kind of thinking about racial justice in particular. My my evolution and my understanding of gender-based justice came mm. later. Mm. Um, I came through a very kind of Black nationalist uh, frame and ideology, and I was very steeped in that as a young person. Yeah. Was um, there militancy involved in that? Yeah, militancy, but also a very Afrocentric mm-hmm. kind of idea of the world the original man, the, you know, kind of... Leading to that 5%er as well. As right. Well, really. you know, what people sometimes call hotep yeah. kind of ideology now, and, and they usually do that in a kind of derisive way. Yeah. Um, and I don't do it in a derisive way because hotep comes from something. Um, there's a It was a response to something, right? right. Um, and the people who believe it don't necessarily stay there. And right. I think that idea that, you know, you believe something, you come to the world fully formed and you're so your politics are on, you know, 100 and everybody you're doing the right things. You say the right words you, is bullshit. <laughs> and it actually alienates people from wanting to be part of social movement yeah. because the idea is that we're draconian. And what we what ends up happening is that you beat, you know, beat people over the head with your ideas and you're trying to convert them. And, you know, right. that's really problematic. So, yeah, I grew up, you know, Michael Stewart was killed. Um, in 1983, mm. um, supposedly because he was doing graffiti and killed by the police. And I remember very vividly during that period of time, um, kind of, I think I, I might have been like, what, I was 12 or something. But I remember that story. And I remember my friends talking about this young black man who'd been killed for tagging. And I remember not going at the time. I wasn't at any rallies or anything like that. But it was like in the air. Yeah. Um, a couple of years later. I um, also, a friend of ours, um, ended up getting arrested and roughed up by the police, very terribly beaten up. Um, And that was kind of the beginning for me of, I had already begun to be politicized through my father. Mm -hmm. um, And my father is, was a Pan-Africanist. My father fought um, for the, um, against colonialism and and for the um, independence of Guinea. Um, So he, I have a a kind of a background around politic. And my, the first books I read were from my father's bookcase. Mm -hmm. And they were Malcolm X's biography Mm -hmm. and uh, Kamara Lai's, which is, he's an African author um, called L'Enfant Noir, The the Black Child. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I read these books, but I hadn't made a connection between the ideas to practice. And then when my friend um, ended up getting into a police brutality situation, that kind of began to push me into activism in a different kind of way. And I was probably like around 14 years old when I went then to my first demonstration, um, police anti-violence demonstration. Um, and then from there, I started getting involved in all sorts of other things as a result of that as a teenager. Yeah, so I wanted to stay in the city in the 80s for one second. Any uh, relatively early hip-hop stories from your time there? Sure. Um, I... <laughs> I'm imagining like like Cold Crush in some basement somewhere. You know, <laughs> first of all, I want to say this to the young people today. <laughs> this is my one preachy moment. <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. Let's I have to say it because I I started going out really young. In New York. And we would get into nightclubs um, way, I mean, way young, okay? (laughs) And I hung around people who were much older than me. Mm. I always felt older than my age. And I I think that there's something to the fact that I didn't get to enjoy um, those things with my peers. 
Mm. I always mm. kind of lived this life with people who are much older than me. And, you know, I was doing things way past my age. I was in a hurry to get older. Um, and I think that's the story for many young people. And I wonder about, like, what would have happened later on in my life had I not done things so early. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we were we were out all the time. You know, New York in Cafe. And it's kind of like the beginning of slam poetry. Mm. I remember going and sitting and listening to Maggie Estep, Saul Williams, all these people who were kind of like, you know, a little bit older than me, yeah. but just a bit older than me, making their way in New York City. Um, it was an incredible time to grow up in that city. We were at the very beginning of the deregulation of uh, mm. the mental health, you know, mental health clinics. Right, and the single room op- occupancies. Exactly. Up All yeah. of a sudden, it, literally overnight, I remember this as a kid, overnight we went from like seeing no homeless people in the streets to get, in order to get to school to having to walk over people at the at the mm. uh, you know subway um and i saw like that transition and that change i you know grew up in the tom you know the tomkins park squatter yeah. era um, wow, that's amazing because like know? it's heartbreaking to, to to see like the epidemic of homelessness but f- i think people my age it is normalized right and right. it feels and it like it's not always normal. been so to 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 see a world before that and watch that starts i could imagine how that with probably not even realizing it has like propelled and shaped your consciousness. Yeah, no, I just I just didn't know. I mean, and it wasn't because we weren't seeing, it was because they actually wasn't in existence. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like it actually it was a man-made, man-created, policy-created right. problem. You can see the state decisions and the effects. So That's basically exactly for right. the what what happened was they had these uh psychiatric institutions which in a lot of ways were, were horrible, terrible and draconian yeah. and punishment uh but in less with that being the argument but more like we need to save this money. What they did was they closed them and they took uh, areas where there were open apartments and they converted them into these small kind of micro apartments. And they just put uh, like, quote, high functioning people there and said that there would be kind of outpatient treatment for them. And then within a year or so, those outpatient services were cut and the folks that they were supposed to go to for help were gone. And so all of a sudden you have folks who had been institutionalized and had psychiatric problems walking the streets, living on their own in 80s New York. And a lot of like the image of the 80s in New York comes from all of a sudden this influx. Mm-hmm. So you trying to tell me it wasn't 14 year olds selling crack on the corner that ruined New York? No. Oh no, man, I thought it was no, their fault. No. But you know, I think it's important. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this the other day. One of the seminal kind of memories for me um, right before I, I uh, my senior year of high school was the Central Park Five case. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's a case that I think now more people know about because of the uh, d- excellent documentary that was mm-hmm. done about that particular case. But that was a case of these five young, like between the ages of 14 to 16 year old black boys who were taken by the police, interrogated for hours, forced into confessions um, because a woman was a 28 year old white woman w- who was jogging in Central Park, was viciously and horribly raped and attacked and left for dead. Um, and her name was, I think, Patricia Mielli. And um, and these young men, and it was a circus in the way that you, I don't think anybody saw that kind of sensational coverage. For weeks, we had on the cover of the New York Post and the Daily News and all of our horrible dailies in New York, a wolf pack is mm. what they call these young men. Wow. Uh, they said that they were wilding in the part, like the savage, you know, super predator. Yeah. This is the this is the, p- the period, this is 1989, and this is the period of the beginnings of the, so we're seeing Hillary Clinton now being pilloried with old images of her talking about super predators mm. coming back to like harass and harm people to use as a way to justify their 1994 uh, violence right, against right. The, the crime bill. Um, that 1989 kind of wilding thing was like, high-pitched super predator language yeah. which is still with us and, the, and which came from the past and that too. was also around the um what was it willie horton willie horton yeah willie horton was, was that, in that, that same was, year in the, that same was era? yeah that was uh uh george w uh bush the george h w yeah. bush during his um Ele- during his election with dukakis right. that was in 19 i think 1986 or 1987 um he pulled out those uh, willie horton ads to kind of scare uh the swing vote white people into voting um against dukakis who he saw was as soft on crime so yeah real quick like uh other podcast plug if you want to find out more about central park five 
Uh, the Comeback Jack Show did a great interview. Oh, the podcast plug. Hey, man, I don't know that's about love. That. They did a great interview with <laughs> Raymond Santana, who was one of the Central Park Five, okay. who after many, many years, you know, the there were they were basically uh, exonerated. Exonerated. Um, and it's a great conversation about the whole process. So go check that out after you listen to all 29 <laughs> episodes of Eric. <laughs> so we are here learning uh, from the wonderful Miriam Kaba on Ergo Radio, WHBK. Uh, so let's fast forward a little bit um, as we get into your history. When did the transition to coming to Chicago happen and, and, and what brought that about? That's great. Yeah, I came to Chicago in 1995. Um, and I moved here for graduate school. I came um, to go to graduate school at Northwestern University, okay. um, and I ended up had no intention of staying here in Chicago. <laughs> I came with a three-year plan. I was going to be gone in 1998. Um, I uh, ended up staying and that's like, what What are we now? 2016. So <laughs> I stayed over 20 years of my time spent here in Chicago. Um, it, I came I, in my first couple of years in the city. I, I was like, oh, what is this place? I went home every other week. I went home to New York. I literally flew every other week to the East Coast. Um, and then for some reason, I, I was able to feel as though I was um, at home all of a sudden. Mm. And so this became a second home what, to me. What, what brought that feeling or what, what was that transition? I think that I particularly was, um, I started getting involved. I started getting involved in various organizations, various projects, um, and I started to kind of make a new community for myself here. Um, and that was really the transition and change that led to me feeling at home. That's amazing. So I, I want to, I'm trying to figure, Let's let's talk about Project Nia, yeah. uh, and, and, and can you explain to the people what that is and, sure. and how that umbrella formed? Sure. Um, I started Project Nia in 2009, um, and the organization basically is uh, dedicated to a long-term vision of ending youth incarceration. Mm. So we're an abolitionist organization, and um, we focus on supporting, um, walking alongside um advocating for young people in conflict with the law, criminalize young people. Um, and in Chicago, that's particularly young black kids, um, young young black people. So um, that's how I started it. You know, Project Nia is the first time that my job overlaps with my work. Hmm. For most of my adult life, I've had jobs and then I've done my work mm. and they've been separate things. Um even though obviously most of the jobs I've had have had something to do with, uh, you know, trying to make the world a little bit better. Um, but yeah, this is the first time that my job and my work actually overlap with each other. I don't know how I feel about that, but um, <laughs> but yeah. So that that's the big part of the work for Project Nia, and we do a whole bunch of things. We do research, we do organizing and advocacy, we um, do popular education, create curriculums that other people use in their classrooms and in their spaces, um, and we incubate projects. We help young young people and others who want to create projects that are focused on anti-criminalization of youth uh, do those with under our auspices. So we catalyzed and incubated Circles and Ciphers and um, Families in Touch and Liberation Library and all these other projects that kind of come under the larger umbrella of Project Nia. And do your Googles on all those organizations and get to know them because they're doing great work in the city. They are, yes. So from, from that, I want to um, get into, so I credit you for this in my mind um, if you don't want to take this credit you can let me know uh, but I you know I consider myself now a, a prison and police abolitionist um, and, and I try to scream that from the mountaintop wherever I go whenever I can I feel like a lot of people have now heard me say it and have had to engage with it um, and so I would like one for you to kind of define your understanding of, of those two concepts or do you even separate them as two separate concepts um and and how your journey led you to that like it it, it now feels very like obvious mm -hmm. but it's it's still radical and it still takes absolutely. a process to get there absolutely well, i mean we're definitely in the minority <laughs> yeah. I, I think we don't have to worry about that um on all sides <laughs> <laughs> i don't think we're definitely on the minority there yeah um so uh, for me prison abolition is um two things. It's the complete and utter dismantling of prisons, policing, and surveillance um, as they currently exist within our culture. Um, and it's also the building up of um, new ways of intersecting and new ways of relating with each other. It's 
so abolition is, you know, often seen by people as this kind of destructive force, um, the destruction of institutions that we want to have see gone with good reason because they hurt people, they harm people, they don't keep us safe, they don't do all those things. They destabilize. They, you know, they they destabilize, they uproot. Um, they're you know horribly violent institutions, right? Um, but people often. St- spend a lot of time on that angle and less time on the building up part. The building up part is equally as important as the destruction because you can't have the destruction without the building because people aren't ever going to be comfortable saying no to prisons and policing and all that other stuff if we don't have any place for them to actually feel like they can get what they see as the safety, at least, that they get from those other institutions. So we've got to both convince people that they're not actually safe, and I think they know that with the current way things are going, but we also have to produce another opportunity for people to feel safer, right? Um, And so I think for me also the other issue around abolition that I think is important for people, and I want to kind of make this clear, is it isn't reform. It isn't reformist reforms, that makes people feel very uncomfortable, right? Because you have to have something that um, you have to you have to have non-reformist reforms. It's okay to have non-reformist reforms on your way to abolition. What is that? Just, um, since you've said a few, the idea of a reformist reform, non like just define that real quick. Yeah, reformist reforms basically are the reforms that. Um, put more obstacles in your way to dismantling the system and creating new things. So any kinds of reforms that are meant to basically uh, entrench the current structures or put new horrific you know, structures in people's lives, that's not abolitionist by more, nature. More tasers. More tasers, mm-hmm. body cams. Um, you Cops know, playing basketball with kids more. That's right. <laughs> yeah. More relationship building between police and the people they oppress. Well, let me just say that the problem between young people who are being oppressed by the police and the police is not that they don't know each other. Right. They see they, each other every day. They know each other very well. That's actually, and actually that was somebody um, who you had on your show, Ethos, um, was one of the first people to articulate that in a very interesting way to me, which was like, you know, no, it's not relationship building. We know who they are. They know who we are. That's not the problem. The problem is a complete and utter power imbalance and oppression, right? And so you can't change that with basketball um, and or even probably, you know, you can't change that with peace circles between the police and young people. Mm. Um, and that's controversial, but true. Um, and so, you know, so that's those are reformist reforms. A non-reformist reform is a reform that actually allows you to see your way towards abolition. It's a reform that doesn't reinforce the current systems and structure. It's a reform that actually helps to, you know, dismantle and build up at the same time what you're trying to get to, which is this abolitionist future. Um, So those are the differences between that. Um, And so if you think about uh, calls to divest from police, that's a non-reformist reform. Mm -hmm. To divest and to invest in other things. That's a non-reformist reform. That's something you can fight for. Um, You know, sometimes uh, structures that allow community members to hold real power over the system, those can be non-reformist reforms. They tend not to be in practice because power likes to actually consolidate itself and and hold itself. So you're always fighting against that. The, The amorphous ways in which power kind of is insidious and always works to try to reify itself and always works to try to keep itself in place. Um, but sometimes if you can find subversive ways to get past that, those can be non-reformist reforms. So how did you get to the understanding that reforming this these institutions will not help and that they do not keep us safe and that they need to go and we need to create new ways? Though that's in practice for me. Mm-hmm. I came up in um, my organizing, I mentioned before, around racial justice issues. I saw all the reforms that were offered around police and policing. The same ones that are being reformed, offered now today <laughs> were offered 30 years ago right. and 60 years ago and 100 years ago, mm-hmm. frankly, okay, it, without the technology fixes that we now are doing. Um, so I've seen the story over and over again tell itself, um, and yet the systems continue to be corrupt and brutal. So clearly that's not working, right? And right, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and, and over again, expecting it, yeah. different results. Well, that's part of that. But for my own personal journey, I um, 
moved from racial justice work into gender-based justice work in college. Um, and that mainly came out of my own experience as being a survivor of uh, sexual violence. Um, and I try, I still am very much steeped in addressing issues that are gender-based violence related, particularly violence against women and girls. Um, and uh, I realized in my own situation that I, had, I was not going to turn to the system for any sort of accountability or justice. The person who harmed me was somebody in my own family who I loved um, and trusted. And so I was like, I'm not going to take this to any court. And I don't mm. particularly want this person in prison or jail. And there was no room for, at the time, for thinking about what else. Mm. Right. There was just like, this wow. kind of sense of like, I'm not going to get any accountability, but I'm also, I don't want to do this. This is not for me. And I worked for many years as a volunteer and also as a staff person at domestic violence and rape crisis centers and saw over and over again the ways in which the system did not provide what people would typically think of as accountability and justice for themselves. And I was like, also, I saw the ways in which like those systems were working alongside the police and alongside the courts mm. who were so oppressive, right? The right. law is not, you know, uh, is is not my master, but is my torturer, right? James Ooh. Baldwin. So I saw that and I was like, this is not comfortable for me. What's another thing? Right. What are some other ways that we can address this? And that's what led me into reading and thinking about abolition as an option. Because I was like, this is not working right. for me as a black woman. Right. I do not feel comfortable using these tools and these structures. I want something different and something else. So that, in part, is what led me towards that. And there were other experiences, a student of mine who killed another student, and my desire to figure out a restorative way to address that issue mm. um, all led me towards restorative justice. You know, So yeah. these are the things that happen. Um, no, can, the, the restorative justice. I think that is the answer mm -hmm. that we, we uplift. An answer, potentially. An, an answer mm -hmm. that we uplift in terms of readdressing or um, dismantling these punitive systems and these violent systems. Uh, and so that's something I'm still very early, personally, in learning about. Yeah. Um, so so can you give us a brief kind of overview of, of what reformative uh, restorative justice is and what that kind of looks like? Yes, absolutely. Um, restorative justice is uh, basically a set of approaches and philosophies and ideas about how we address harm in society. Restorative justice practitioners believe that punishment does not actually um, address, doesn't solve the problems that we are actually dealing with. Punishing people usually makes them retreat, not take accountability, become super defensive, maybe become more violent, mm -hmm. right? Um, and punishment itself is violent. So the question is, when harm comes to a community, Who's impacted? What happened? Why did it happen? What can we do to repair the harm? And that's those are restorative questions, right? What can we do to repair this harm? Is there some way that we can address and hold the harm that happened, center this person who was most impacted, and make sure that we understand that when harm happens, it's not just individuals. The whole community is impacted. Mm -hmm. Relationships matter a great deal, right? They matter to hold us to account because if people we love um, say to us, this is terrible, we're much more likely to hear that than a bunch of strangers in a courtroom mm -hmm. passing judgment on us. And saying you're a terrible and person. And yeah, you're and you're a terrible person rather than you did a terrible thing, right? Right. Um, that there are no monsters in the world, really, mm -hmm. that we all are harmed in some way in our lives, and we all cause harm, all of us. Yeah. There is not a person in this world who hasn't hurt somebody else in some way. Now, are we all going down the street murdering people? No, actually murder is rare, right? I always tell people too about murder and murderers in prison that they're the least likely to recidivate. All <laughs> research suggests that. Why? Even if they're not caught. Why? Because killing somebody is such a horrid, horrible thing that doing it again is almost, you know, it, it's just too much for most people. They don't do it again. So, you know, when people say, well, wow, you don't have prisons, where are all the murder? You know, this is not the, you know, it's not the right question. And it's not just because the external stakes are so high when you kill someone. It's the, your, what it does to it's you. It's what yeah. it does to you, yeah. right? And that restorative justice holds that. Now, 
there are arguments and criticisms of restorative justice being too individualistic, mm. too focusing on interpersonal relations and relationships, and making and so people have used the term transformative justice mm-hmm. instead of restorative justice to account for the fact that we live with social forces that are oppressive and that those social forces infuse themselves in our interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. but also that if you can't you can't just transform people's interpersonal relationships without changing the structures yeah. that are oppressive so transformative justice asks you to yes concentrate on the interpersonal but also change the structures yeah, I mean, I think it's a s- incredibly uh, powerful, and I mean, I've seen it be effective framework. Uh, but going back to the moment where you're saying, "I don't want to participate in this punitive system here," but I don't know what the alternative is. I think the moment of like saying, "Let's imagine a new structure," that's a that's a first of all, it's very brave, and second of all, it requires a kind of like imagination. Uh, of yeah, an imagination that I think a lot of people kind of stop short of. Um, so I think one of the things that's been great in this moment, in this exciting moment in Chicago and across the country, is more and more folks having an alter- having that alternative model or other alternative models to look for. Mm-hmm. So for you being involved in this work for so long, uh, what are you seeing that is going differently now because of these models that you and other folks have worked so hard to create? Well, I'll say this, you know, part of starting Project NIA um, for me was actually to test out restorative models, Mm. right? Um, Circles and Ciphers is based on restorative justice, right? right? Um, And so it's to actually put those things in practice. So I think in responding to that question, I have never, it's been really, really difficult to figure out ways within our movements to hold people accountable for harm. And I've been actually heartened at um, the ways in which when harm has happened here in Chicago, where organizations and people are stepping up in new and different ways to address those harms yeah. and maybe, and being public about it right. in a way that never used to happen. Never, I promise you, <laughs> I've been part of organizations for 30 years and it was not that way. And so I, I'm feeling encouraged by those models. I'm feeling encouraged that people are actually uh, testing them out and trying new things and being willing to fail yeah. because wow. we're human beings and we shouldn't always think that we can be perfect. We're never going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes. We should acknowledge our mistakes Keep working, keep working, keep working. And I always tell people, you know, the only people who are constantly asked to prove the efficiency of their models are people who don't have any power. Yeah. The prisons have been terrible. Recidivism rates up the wazoo. They get $80 billion a year from the government without a blink. And we're constantly asking to give more money to the prisons. The prisons don't have to fill out evaluation forms at the end to say, like, our success rate is this or that (laughs) to be able to warrant resources. We just give the resources to the prisons without any question. Right. And then act surprised when disaster comes. Well, not even act surprised. We don't don't even question. We don't care. We don't care. (laughs) We just keep funneling more and more resources to these systems. The policing is the same thing. More and more resources to systems that keep showing us that they don't know how to do what they suppose either they're doing what they're supposed to do because that's what we have them there for we have the prison there to like marginalize and 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 hold captive redundant populations so we're happy and we don't care about recidivism we hope people keep coming in and, and out great labor right all sorts of stuff actually that that's a real problem <laughs> I, I i'm not going to go into my pet yeah. peeve about the story we tell about mass incarceration in this country it's the wrong story mm. we're not labor and economics and prisons are completely misunderstood, mm-hmm. particularly by the liberal, right now, yeah. the liberal left. This is what I, w- I wanted to get the into. The concept of the prison actually being a source of income, like profit making, right. is wrong. Prisons are public institutions. Yeah. The vast majority of prisons, 90%, 94%, of them, yeah. are actually public institutions that are supported by our tax dollars. of those prisons are private prisons, and they make some money, but not these astronomical amounts of money. And we shouldn't profit ever from punishment, but that's not the issue, right? Are also some, like, state, like, I'm pretty sure the Colorado Department of Corrections is now, like, leasing out the state prisoners to, like... We've always leased out state prisoners through convict leasing, 
since emancipation. Right, right. But that's not the issue. The issue is are prisons economic issues and economic problems and economic yes, they're economic issues and problems. They are not necessarily about profit. And the thing that's important for us to also keep in mind when we're thinking about prisons, I need to get off this get on this because I think it's very important to educate people about Please. where like what really we should be focusing our intention on and stop getting distracted by things that are not actually the problem. And so I hear people constantly saying things like, well, yeah, every service within prisons are privatized. It's not that the prison is privatized. It's that the services provided in prisons are privatized. So if you want to fight about privatization, that's a privatization issue. The next thing is labor within prisons. Prisoners, most prisoners in America don't actually work in prison anymore. There are no jobs for them to do in prison anymore because things have shifted so much around how, what we produce in the country. We produce things overseas for much cheaper even right. than what we pay a prisoner like $1 an hour. They can pay somebody to elsewhere for $0.30 cents an hour, right? right. So the, multi, the multi, uh, multinational neoliberal economic model has actually made it so that prisoners aren't hardly working. Talk to any prisoner friends. My prisoner friends want jobs right. within prison. So here's the contradiction. They want jobs within prison because their sense is that when you're in a particular position, they're bored as hell. Prisons yeah. are prisons are brutal, horrible, and super boring for people. Right. So they want something to do. Right. So when you hear prisoner rights people, they, prisoners will say, we want jobs, but they actually don't have jobs. So it's not that we're making money off the labor of prisoners. That's not the problem. The problem is a broader economic one, which is that all these populations that are marginalized and not seen as valuable are locked in prisons. And what that does is it artificially brings down our unemployment rate in the country, right? And so it tamps down the potential for people to possibly revolt because instead of unemployment being, you know, 5% in quote-unquote real terms, it's actually 15%, but you don't know that because all these folks have been taken out of our communities and put into prison. So the people that we're not educating. That we're not educating. So so prisons, yeah. Prisons are economic engines in that way more than they are profit-making centers More than they are about exploitation of labor of prisoners. It used to be that prisoners worked more Mm. than they do now. But if you understand what actually goes on in prisons, then you don't make those kinds of arguments. Yeah. Yeah. And so all all that you just said, and and I want to get to We Charge a little bit. Um, All that you just said is why I'm so like annoyed at best, uh, by <laughs> by the reform and how Obama's getting all this like political capital for like oh I'm addressing the prison issue because even if he's gonna do incremental reform he's not even addressing mm. the problem and mm. how our society is benefit or how people in our society is benefiting from this system. Well, I also can we be really honest about the fact that the federal government has very little actual control over right. our prisons? Exactly. Also. Mm. Right. The, he, mo- and he they're like, say that. but yeah. you know, two hundred thousand people in our federal prisons. We have two point five million people locked up in our prisons and jails around the country. Prison and jail issues are mostly local and state issues. Right. You should be mad at your governor, frankly, more than you should be at Obama. What Obama can contrib- can uh, can can do is set a tone, yeah. right? And what he can also do is commute more sentences for people. Mm-hmm. But most of those commutations will be at the federal level. Right. And that's only 200,000 people. Yeah. So it won't even touch the state that's, level. That's, that's what irks me is that it doesn't touch it doesn't stu- it, And it's not, it doesn't touch it by design. So whether we love Obama or we hate Obama, mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge how little control Obama actually has over the criminal punishment system. Now, that is something that should scare the hell out of everybody, right? Because <laughs> yeah. like, the federal system is so it's small and insignificant compared to our local and state. So if you're concerned about your prisons, and you're, you better sure as hell be paying attention to your state's attorney races. Right. Because those prosecutors hold the power of being able to incarcerate large numbers of black and brown people, and they right. do. Right. But no, who oh, ask people right. who if how many? Who is your state's attorney? <laughs> yeah. Who is the Cook County state's attorney? Who yeah. is your particular prosecutor, chief prosecutor in your locality and town? Yeah. People be like, I don't know. If it wasn't for Laquan, we, no people wouldn't know. People wouldn't know Anita Alvarez's yeah. name, yeah. Yeah. and she, and we, she's got a primary coming up in yeah. six weeks, yeah. and people are still giving her way. high marks. Right. She scary. may actually get reelected That's to scary. a third term. That's really scary. Right? So that's what I mean by like, for me, intellectual labor and understanding is super important. We've got to know things so that we know where to apply the right pressure to get the right solutions we want to see. But if you don't know all this, then your organizing is worth nothing because you're Mm. hitting on the wrong target. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's it's like working. You can work really hard and not work smart, you know. Um, and I think you know one of the things that's enabled some real substantive meaning to meaningful change in the city is that the body of young organizers has learned a lot from you. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it sounds so simple, but like they had good teachers, <laughs> and then they took what they learned. Uh, so kind of like looking at this moment in the city and looking at you know the first. 27 or so names that we've had on the show like what are you seeing in that community that gives you excitement or joy i have so much hope (laughs) i am like hope filled all the time is that new is that scary i've always been hopeful okay i've never i'm not always optimistic Mm. but i've always been hopeful and i have so much hope i see so many young people who do have an analysis of the world that is actually um, a, a transformative analysis of the world, um, a radical analysis, radical in its right term, which is getting at the root of issues and not mm. just being on the focus of the surface. Um, so I have so much hope for for what will happen in this city because of these young organizers. And, you know, you've had many of them on, but you listen to them. And I get to, I, you know, part of why I love this show is because I get to stand back and just hear them talk about their work and how they use their work and what kinds of things they're doing. And I'm learning from them as a result, too. Many of these young people are also artists, and they're using their art in these brilliant ways to help tell new stories and help, uh, you know, help expand our mind and also help us have more space in the world to be able to transform it. That's and the, beautiful. And this feels different. I mean, it's hard from within it to see whether this is just now or whether it's different from other moments as well. Does we've had different? moments. We've had, I mean, th- we've had moments yeah. before that I did not inhabit. I can mm. imagine right. what it must have felt like to be part of the struggles in the 1920s and 30s in New York City where when communists were ruling the world and actually come, you know, when communists were ruling, black communists were ruling Harlem and other places, right, where they could make these strong demands for complete redistribution of wealth and like, you know, like people on soapboxes, right? I imagine those images of that. And I can't imagine, I can imagine the excitement of that period in that time. So I'm always, I'm of the, I'm not of the idea that, um, Things are not dynamic. They're always dynamic. And they don't happen in waves. They happen in contestation, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so there are people right now, young people who are reactionary, and then there are young people who are um, transformative. And they're, you, the arguments are happening between you all, <laughs> yeah. right? Between the reactionary yeah. young people and the transformative young people. And we're going to figure out who's going to win that fight, mm-hmm. you know? So with all that going on, uh, and you don't have to get into this if you don't want, but I know, you know, I'm glad we got you on here before you leave town uh, and it, after 20 some odd years. Where are you headed and why? Why are you leaving us? Don't do it. No. <laughs> I'm leaving. We'll have you co-host forever. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. I'm so sad. Yeah, I'm so like sad. Not, I, mean, I would love to co-host <laughs> this show one day. I'll come back just for oh, that. Um, but um, yeah, I'm leaving Chicago after over 20 years to move back to New York City my hometown right. um, and uh, yeah and you know and mostly I, I'm I should say this I'm gonna miss the city so very much I'm gonna miss everybody in it um, I've made friends who are really family and um, so many people that I love so I'm, I'm gonna miss every minute of it mm-hmm. uh, real quick I know we're transformative but uh, beef with an R&B singer who you got I have Desiree Desiree. Desiree. Ooh, People may maybe quick, do, you got to look up Desiree. Desiree is the singer that sang, I want to be the, da, 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 you know, that I got to be free. I got to oh, be. Right, right. That's be, uh, Oh, my God. <laughs> my beef is that that song <laughs> was the bane of my existence for like a year of time. So that's my beef is Desiree. <laughs> Wow. Down even, with Desiree. Even in beef you're teaching. Like, That's look at it. that. That's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, and we're running out of time. Like I said, we could do a million conversations with you. I, I do think like one of the spa- one of the ways to continue those conversations is your Twitter's the best. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. First of all, how do you ever look up from your phone because you have <laughs> tweets every 35 seconds that are all brilliant? That's pretty funny. Um, mm-hmm. I don't actually have a phone. 
that is a smartphone. So how are so you? So you're on the computer. I'm only I only tweet when I'm sitting in front of a computer. That actually helps. Whatever I like, sometimes I write them out on Word documents. Yeah. I <laughs> only tweet when out. I'm sitting in front of a computer. And yeah, my Twitter account is at Prison Culture, and um, I'm usually ranting about something. Well, yeah, I mean, I have a bunch of folks who always come up like, "How do I know what's going on in the city? How do I learn?" Yeah. There is your answer, <laughs> folks. That's it. There you go. Follow Prison Culture. You got any last words here, Dan? No, I'm just I'm just really excited and honored to have had this conversation. There's like at least an hour of other things I would have loved to talk about. Uh, so we're going to go have lunch at the Lighthouse and, and talk about it. Uh, so shout out to the Lighthouse. Everybody go rock with them on 53rd in Hyde Park. Uh, and that's pretty much all I got, man. Much love to the people. Yeah, follow Miriam at Prison Culture. Follow us at Ergo Radio, Ergo Daniel, and Damon underscore AF. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with another strong young voice from Chicago and beyond next week. Much love. Peace.